You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. I am deeply honored by this invitation to be with you uh, here this week. Um, as a faculty member at North Park, uh, we look upon Fuller as an institution that uh, is an innovative and exciting place, a place that looks forward, uh, especially when it comes to missions and to global Christianity. Uh, Fuller is one of those places where we can look at and say, God is really doing the work of exhibiting and embodying global Christianity here at Fuller. So it is a very high honor for me to be a part of this gathering and to present a series of lectures uh, here at, the, at, the, at Fuller. Um, I am particularly looking forward to engaging on this particular topic of a, of a world that is becoming increasingly multicultural and how the church responds to this uh, very dynamic time in our uh, nations and also our world's uh, church history. Uh, so we know now, um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you some old news, uh, and I'm going to give you some good news, and I hope I give you a challenge that is uh, coming out of that good news. So the old news is that the, we know that we are living in a world that is changing rapidly. We know that we are living in a time where we are seeing some drama dramatic and drastic changes. The question is not, are changes occurring? The question is, how are American Christians going to respond to the changes that are occurring all around us? That's why I want us to take a look at the book of Acts chapter 15. I'm going to give you a little bit of the historical context, and we're going to examine the first five verses here in Acts chapter 15 for us to get a snapshot of what's happening to the early church and how those uh, similar symptoms and uh, experiences in the early church are now what we might be experiencing in the 21st century in world Christianity. Uh, most of you know this already. Acts chapter 15 is the description of the Council of Jerusalem. And the Council of Jerusalem was convened because they needed to deal with the reality of some very dramatic and drastic changes in the early church. And that drastic change was a church that had started off as a subset or a sect of Judaism was now moving into a totally new territory. It was no longer going to be a faith dominated by the Jewish community or Jewish Christians, it was now going to be largely Gentile. And it was going to move demographically from a majority Jewish community to now majority Gentile Christian community. So this chapter tells us how the early church deals with this very dramatic change that is coming to the early church now that there would be more Gentile believers than Jewish believers uh, at the moment that Acts chapter 15 takes place. And this is the old news, that this occurred in the early part of, the, of our church's history, but we also have seen this in the last 100, 150 years in world Christianity as well, that we have seen some very dramatic changes in the makeup of global Christianity. This, again, is old news because we read the books by Dana Robert. We've read the books by Laman Sane and Andrew Walls and Barrett and Johnson, uh, Philip Jenkins. These are books that are now familiar to us and in the evangelical ideal that if you were to say 50 years ago, what is the typical Christian in the world? then you would identify that person as a white male, approximately 50 years old, upper middle class, living in a Midwestern suburb, you would have an accurate picture of Christianity 50 years ago. But if you ask that same question now in the 21st century, you are more likely to get the typical face of Christianity is a peasant woman in Nigeria, a teenager in Mexico City, and a university student in Seoul, South Korea. 
we have been told and we have read and we have experienced and we have seen that the center of Christianity is no longer in Europe and North America, but it is now in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. That in the year 1900, approximately 80% of all Christians in the world are of European descent. But by the year 2050, approximately 80% of the world will be of non-European descent. We are seeing in the middle of the 150-year time period where 1,500 years of church history is being turned on its head. For 1,500 years, the majority of Christians were found in Europe and North America, and now all of a sudden, in only a 150-year time period, those percentages are going to completely flip over. Again, old news. Here is some good news, though. Because in light of that old news, many have thought, well, that means that Christianity is not only moving outside of the West, that might, that's also kind of the good news, but there's also been concern that Christianity is in decline here in the United States. We've seen a lot of the studies that have come up in more recent years. And the reality is that America is becoming more and more diverse on a, as, as a multicultural, multi-ethnic nation. And that change is now beginning to impact the church. And initially it was thought that that change was going to be a negative change. As in the more immigrants came into the United States, the more diverse America became, the less Christian we were going to become. This was the thesis of Harvard uh, professor Diana Eck who was, I believe, given a million dollars to study pluralism in America. And uh, I don't know what happened to that million because the study was not very good. Because we ended up with the idea that the more diverse America becomes, the less Christian America is going to be. That when immigrants bring their faith with them, they're going to be Buddhists and and, uh, Hindus and Muslims. and, And that is true. There is a Buddhist temple now in your neighborhood that wasn't there 30 years ago. There is a Hindu temple, a Muslim mosque, that wasn't there 15, 20, 30 years ago. But what uh, sociologist Stephen Warner says is that we are not seeing the de-Christianization of America, but the de-Europeanization of American Christianity. Because the immigrants that are coming into the United States are, yes, they are bringing Hindu faith and Muslim faith and Buddhist faith, but many are Christians. And so the revitalization and renewal of American Christianity is happening among the immigrant communities, that the immigrant churches, the churches that are being established by first-generation immigrants, these are the places that we're seeing life. And this is reflective of what's happening in our nation as a whole. By the year 2008, a third of the U.S. population was already ethnic minority of non-Anglo descent. By the year 2042, sociologists project, and somewhere in that decade, the majority of all Americans are going to be of non-Anglo descent. We will have no clear majority in the United States in only 20 years from now. Here's a number, uh, 30 years from now. Here's a number, though, that really sticks out at me, and that is by the year 2023, 11 years from now, less than 11 years from now, by the year 2023, half of the children in America are going to be of non-Anglo descent. So what we're seeing there is that this demographic change is not tied to immigration, it is tied to birth rates. And in some of our dialogue right now, we're talking about, well, how can we keep America a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation? That's the perspective of some talk show host. That's the perspective of even some scholars. Uh, Harvard University professor Sam Huntington pretty much made this claim in some of his works. So the question then is, Uh, How are we going to keep America white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant? So my answer is, unless you're going to start killing off children, which I hope is not going to happen, we're going to be a multi-ethnic nation. We already are, but it's happening at a very rapid rate. So if by 2023, the majority of all children are non-white, those children are going to grow up 
and they're going to contribute and become a part of that larger society that is moving rapidly towards a true multi-ethnic and diverse community. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to be partisan or political here, but I, we can't ignore the fact that there was something that happened yesterday. I mean, I think we can say, without being partisan, something happened yesterday. Now, now is the time that something that has happened yesterday is when all the pundits and all the analysts review this material and say, well, what happened in this election? And I've heard the same refrain a couple of times from both within the Republican Party and also from the national media. The strategy, this presidential strategy, the election strategy, was faulty because it really tried to reach the old white male vote. And in fact, one of the uh, strategists for the Republican Party said, we just don't have enough angry white men to win this election. <laughs> so we saw this strategy that said, we need to appeal to the white male older voter to overwhelm the other votes. And it turned out that 70% of Latinos voted for the other candidate. 99.9% of African-Americans voted for the other. So what we ended up with is an election that showed that unless you have a diversity in your coalition, you're not going to win the national vote. So again, this is not a partisan statement. This is just a pure sociological, political analysis of the process. A good friend of mine just tweeted this very intriguing tweet. He said... If most evangelical denominations follow the strategy of the Republican Party, they're going to end up in the same situation. <laughs> so is that what's happening? Where most evangelical denominations are so focused on preserving the older white male vote that we forget how incredibly diverse American society has become and continues to become. The concern for the last few years has been, how are we going to deal with this decline in American Christianity? There have been a number of doom and gloom articles and doom and gloom books written about this decline and the real concern that the fastest growing category right now in American identif religious identification is a category known as spiritual, but not religious. And one of the fastest declining and, and seems to be fraying at the edges are Protestant denominations, both mainline and evangelical, seem to be declining in pretty substantial and notable numbers. Now, I think the problem there is that those numbers tend to reflect white Protestant decline. For example, in one of the studies that was done in the year 2009, that study separated out the black church from evangelicals. And so you had the black church, which had stayed and maintains consistent, stable numbers. And yet when you pull those numbers out, it shows a decline among white evangelicals. So the concern is there is a decline in the church in America. I would say that's partially true. There is a decline in the white evangelical church in America. But it turns out that immigrant churches, multi-ethnic churches, African-American churches, Spanish-speaking churches are growing by leaps and bounds. We are in a new era of Christianity in America. Let me give you a small sample of this, small taste of this. Um, I was a pastor when I went to graduate school in the Boston area. I also served as a pastor of a church in that area. Now, what happened was I grew up in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. And uh, after I had uh, finished my, uh, my undergrad, I was getting ready to move up for graduate school. And my church gathered around to pray for my, my faith that I would not lose my faith in the center of all that is evil in the world known as Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> 
So they gathered around, laid hands. Lord, don't let him lose his faith when he goes into that wicked area of Boston and Cambridge. So there I am in my car, packed with all my stuff, going to seminary, fearing for my spiritual life, praying as hard as I can as I'm driving up the New Jersey Turnpike. So I get to Boston and guess what I find? I find a city that is not spiritually dead. I find a city that is spiritually vibrant and alive. Like I've never seen a spiritually this uh, vibrant li- uh, a city like this before. But why was it that everybody else was saying Boston is spiritually dead? Because in the year uh, uh, 1970, there were about 300 churches. And almost all of those churches were white mainline churches. And half of those 300 churches have now shut their doors. But by the year 2005, there were 600 churches in the city of Boston. So a net gain, of four, uh, a gross gain of 450 new churches in a 35-year time period. And most of those churches were churches in the immigrant, ethnic minority, African-American, multi-ethnic communities. So in a a time frame between 2001 and 2006, around the time that people were saying Boston is a secular and spiritually dead place. In fact, when I was pastoring in Cambridge, I would get these very uh, uh, well-intentioned college students who were in Christian colleges on the West Coast or in, in the South. They would come up and say, we're so sorry for you that you're in this secular the sinkhole of spirituality. We're here to pray for you and pray for the downfall of Harvard. It was a really interesting conversation. You know, I go to Harvard and have my students go to Harvard. Why are you praying for their downfall? So you had this kind of expectation that Boston and Cambridge were these spiritually dead places. But in the time period of 2001 and 2006, there were 98 new church plants in the city of Boston. Now, Boston proper is only about half a million people. So to have almost 100 churches planted in a six-year time period, that is phenomenal. That's incredible success. But everybody was saying, oh, Boston is spiritually dead. Why? Because they surveyed those 98 churches, and 76 churches responded to this survey, and half of those 76 churches said they worship in a language other than English. Now, the other 22 that didn't respond, why didn't they respond? Because the survey was conducted in English, and so they didn't respond to the phone call. in which it was was conducted. So we're talking about at least half, probably more, of these new churches are having services in a language other than English. And this doesn't count, again, African-American churches, uh, where services are conducted in English. Uh, Asian-American churches, second-generation Asian-American churches, where services are conducted in English. And also Caribbean churches, some of whom have services conducted in English. So we're talking about way over that 50% mark, the majority, the overwhelming majority of churches in Boston that are being planted are being planted in the immigrant, uh, multi-ethnic, and uh, ethnic communities. So this is the good news. There is a new era of American Christianity. How are we going to respond to these changes? In Acts chapter 15, we're given a a snapshot of a negative response to these changes. And in fact, it's a fearful response in verses 1 and 5 of Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Then some of the believers, verse 5 tells us, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So here we have a group of people who have been in in control and power, who've had the power, the Judaizers, and now we're fearful of losing that power. And their answer is, we have the privilege and power now. We want to hang on to that privilege and power. So as we're starting to lose the grip on this privilege and power, what we need is for other people to become like us, and then we will accept you. So what it does is it says, 
We're in power. We want to stay in power. And the best way to do that is to make others become like us. The way I phrase this is this is the cultural captivity of the church in the early church. You're captive to the culture of the time rather than actually the scriptures themselves. I would argue this is what we see now in the 21st century. We are in the midst of a Western cultural captivity where we value the Western culture more than we value the tenets of scripture, where we want people to become like us in our Western identity more than we want people to become like Christ, who, by the way, wasn't an American. So what we end up with is assumptions about what true Christianity is. We interpret scripture through that lens. Now, uh, please, I, I want to be careful here, but I, you know, I, as seminary professors, many of us have read the Bible, and maybe more than once. So I've tried to do that as a seminary professor, as a pastor. I try to read the Bible a couple of times, and I have yet to find a single passage that talks about my right to bear arms. Now, here's the mistake that I made during election season in Chicago. I listened to Christian radio. Never listened to Christian radio during election season because I'm hearing these values voters. I'm, I'm a Christian. I have these values. And they say, well, what are those values? The first value is if they agree with me on abortion. Okay, I agree with that. I, I can see that. The second value is that I want to make sure that my candidate supports the right to bear arms. I'm like, oh, where did that come from? Is that in the Bible? I Again, I've read the Bible a couple of times. I just haven't seen it. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to the right to bear arms. I just don't think it's the number two value when I'm voting. <laughs> so how are we then engaging in a cultural captivity of our Christianity rather than a biblical Christianity? Because while I haven't found a single verse about the right to bear arms, I have found a hundred plus counting of verses that talk about care for the alien and the immigrant among us. So that feels very biblical to me. So is there a cultural captivity that we have become so captive to that we uphold this culture higher than the scriptures themselves? And in that way, we are going to do the same thing. Are we doing the same thing that the Judaizers have done? With the Judaizers, we want to hang on to the power so much that we are going to make everybody be like us. And I want to be careful here as well, because this has gotten me into a little, a little bit of trouble. But a few years ago, um, I was fascinated by the evangelical obsession with the emerging church. I couldn't get away from this thing. Every conference that I went to, emerging church. Every bookstore that I would go to, emerging church. Every magazine I picked up, emerging church. And I'm going, what is this emerging church? It sounds really great because everybody's talking about it. And so I explore it and I look at it and I said, wow, this is just a lot of young, white, perpetually 29-year-old, <laughs> blonde-haired, goateed, thin glasses, with skinny jeans who are trying to understand their culture, which is great. That's relevant. That's important. But why did it become the way to do ministry for a pretty extended period of time? I've been thinking about starting a recovery group because I keep running into <laughs> folks who say, I had so much hope in the promise of the emerging church. And now I'm so disappointed because it, where, where is it now? We, we don't talk a whole lot about the emerging church now, yet just a few years ago, it was the only topic of conversation that evangelicals could have. But again, that emerging church left out African-American churches, left out Asian-American churches, left out Spanish-speaking congregation at the, at the, uh, and, and focusing on upper-middle-class white young hipsters. 
So now, how do we begin to emerge out of this cultural captivity? We see in verses 2 and 3 that they bring Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas and Barnabas is in sharp dispute with the other leaders. So Paul and Barnabas are appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. And now it's a leadership issue. And this is something that I want us to be reminded of, that leadership, you as the future leaders of the church, present leaders of the church, the leaders of the church have such a pivotal role in how we're going to engage in the real emerging church, in the new and the next evangelicalism. How are the leaders engaging in what is to come in both global Christianity and American Christianity? Are the leaders setting the example? Are the leaders making the wise decision? So one of my challenges when we talk about leadership is if you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to be a pastor, and if you're going to be a leader in this new multicultural reality, and you have never had a non-white mentor in your life, you're not a missionary. You're a colonialist. You're going to colonize whatever group you go to with your particular brand of white evangelicalism because that's the only world that you know. You're going to colonize that particular community with your understanding and cultural captivity of white evangelicalism because that's all you have known. That's why it's very fascinating to me when we begin to talk about... Stop, I only have a minute left. Uh... (laughs) So how then do we move forward? Well, Acts chapter 15 gives us that image of what it means for God's people to engage in this conversation to engage in this mutual leadership, to seek out the work not only of the Jewish community, but also of the Gentile community and say, we are going to form a new community here, a new uh, covenant community. And that means that we're going to be a family. This is now no longer you do your stuff over there and occasionally you can come to our house. You do your stuff over there and occasionally we'll invite you in. One of the themes right now about global Christianity, Western and non-Western Christianity is the theme of hospitality. I find this interesting because the way it's been described is we, the Westerners, will go to a non-Western culture, establish our base there, and invite people into, and that'll be our extension of hospitality. The other way we've seen this is, here is a young white hipster graduating from an evangelical seminary, moving into an inner city neighborhood to help poor black folks out, buy a place there, and open up their house to extend hospitality to people that have lived there for generations. Okay, so how does that work? What does that mean to be hospitable? I think that's the wrong motif because hospitality implies that one is the host and the other is the guest. And usually the host is the one with the money. Usually the host is the one with the power or the one with whatever means of uh, authority that you have. That's what hospitality means. We have got to get beyond the language of hospitality to the language of family. So if you invite me in as a non-Westerner or as someone outside of the typical evangelical world, You invite me to your house and extend hospitality to me. I'm very thankful for that. And because I'm a Korean American, maybe you'll put out a bowl of kimchi to honor me as a guest in your family. Thank you very much for your hospitality. Thank you for that bowl of kimchi and the sensitivity to that. But I'll tell you what, that hospitality ends because as soon as I leave that house, what's going to happen to that bowl of kimchi? It is in the trash. It is in multiple bags. It's going to be wrapped up in the brown paper bag, in the plastic bag, in the glad bag. However many bags you can get, you will wrap up that kimchi and throw it out as fast as you can. Because hospitality means for that moment you will be nice. But if I'm moving in, if I'm a member of your family, and you have an open jar of kimchi in the refrigerator, and your milk begins to smell and taste like kimchi... 
Now we're family. <laughs> so what does it mean for the people of God to be family? To be reliant and dependent upon each other. To see each other as co-laborers in Christ rather than through the lens of cultural captivity. Lord, I thank you for the work you're doing here at Fuller and the gift of this seminary and the gift of this community. We pray, Lord, that you would call us into a family, a family of God that honors you in all the different expressions that are found here. We pray this in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.